Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Uh, it is good to see you. Thanks for being with us at the 1045 service. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am enjoying the fall season, loving uh, the leaves uh, changing color, uh, loving the cooler weather, sweatshirt, sweat, uh, sweater, sweatshirt and sweater season, uh, and football season as well on Saturdays, Sundays, uh, fun, fun to be in the season. I'm glad you're with us this morning. If you're newer to our church, uh, I want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, if you're on the periphery of our church, maybe you've been coming for some time, but you kind of are on the periphery, uh, we would love to connect with you. As Melio said earlier, uh, we, we would love to get to know you. You get to know us. I'll be at the connect tent, connect table afterwards. Uh, please come by, say hello. Uh, I'd love to say hello and just get to know you as well. One more thing uh, in the way of an announcement. I know you, you got to hear uh, about the women's retreat coming uh, and you heard about the men's retreat a couple weeks ago, but I, I want to make another push for all the men in here uh, to come on the men's retreat November 4th to 5th. Uh, it's a 24-hour time frame uh, going 45 minutes away to Chestnut Ridge, not that far, uh, but you don't want to miss this, guys. Uh, it's going to be an incredible time to be together, uh, and then we're going to get to hear from one uh, Jeff Schulte, who is one of uh, the men in my life who's had a profound impact on me and other people in this church. Uh, Jeff uh, started a church in Nashville, Tennessee years and years ago, uh, left pastoral ministry, started uh, his own ministry called Tin Man Ministry, uh, which that's a story in of itself that I'm sure if you come, you'll hear a little bit about. But Jeff has a passion to come alongside men and help men live into the story that God's writing for them. And so I just want to encourage the guys in here to come sign up for it. Uh, I know there are excuses that are valid, which means you could not come on November 4th or 5th, but I don't want to make it easy uh, for you. Uh, if, if there's not something major going on, come, set it aside. Come join us. It's going to be a great time to be together November 4th to 5th. You can sign up on, uh, on our website. Uh, that's my only push on announcements for you this morning. Uh, if, I don't know if you were here in September uh, when we kind of launched into the calendar ministry year as a church. Uh, we kind of follow the academic calendar with our ministries. Uh, but if you were here, then you heard us. If, and if you weren't, then uh, let me share. We, we shared our vision for the coming year. And we're, we're anchoring ourselves this year in Psalm 85, verses 6 to 7, uh, which says this. Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Uh, that it is our prayer this year that as a church, God would prayerfully bring reviving to us, deep renewal from him. And we believe that this happens, as Psalm 85 says, when we as his people rejoice in God, that God is our greatest delight. Our chief aim is to enjoy God. And, and that when we receive and rest in God's love, it is the very power that transforms our lives and our church. And so in alignment with that vision, we preached a sermon series that we just finished last week titled Signposts, Hope in a Broken World. Uh, with the hope of raising our eyes and our hearts to see the signpost that God has given to make sense of the broken world in which we live and to point us in the hopeful direction that we are intended to live. Well, this morning, uh, still in alignment with our vision, we are starting a new sermon series titled Living Hope, a study in the New Testament book of First Peter. Now, just as a heads up, we're going to do a flyover of 1 Peter. Uh, we were going to spend five weeks in it, but we're only going to spend four weeks in it because Jeff Schulte, the men's retreat speaker, has graciously accepted our invitation to preach that weekend that he's here. Uh, and so, uh, and then we start Advent. And so we're going to spend four out of the next five weeks in 1 Peter, uh, which I think will be a, a great time for us to, to delve into this book. If you've 
read it, if you've never read 1 Peter, it's a book all about hope and suffering. The Apostle Peter is the author, and it's clear throughout the letter that we should not be surprised when we face trials of many kinds. The trials and sufferings in this world are inevitable. I don't know if you've ever noticed how two people can experience the same trial and suffering, the same circumstances, but one person comes out of it bitter, angry, and cynical, and the other person comes out of it loving, gentle, caring, and more hopeful. Suffering produces hope in one person, and suffering produces bitterness in another. When a person goes through the furnace of suffering, it can either produce gold or ash. You can either come out of trials and sufferings more polished, refined like gold, or you can come out burned and charred like ash. Peter wants to show us how to experience splendor in the furnace of suffering, how to come out pure gold, how to live with hope in the midst of this broken world. And so if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter together this morning. This is God's word to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we, we thank you that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you that you have spoken to us that, and you're speaking again through this word this morning. And, and so I pray that you would illumine our minds. I pray that our hearts would be soft to receive. I pray that our souls would be fertile ground by which you would plant your word so that you might bear fruit in our lives. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing. Holy Spirit, would you speak to our spirits? Jesus, would we encounter you this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. 
Well, in 2005, uh, I had the privilege of visiting Cape Town, South Africa. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. Uh, some people are from there in our church. Uh, Cape Town uh, has since been probably my favorite city in the world. Uh, I love Cape Town. Uh, a point of note, Cape Town is a city that uh, our missions team, the missions team of Christ Central Church, has been considering for some time uh, of uh, becoming a long-term partnership city as our church looks to increase our global ministry moving forward. Uh, we already support a church plant in Cape Town and have other ministry connections, and so we're excited about that. There's going to be more coming on that later uh, in the year, uh, but we're excited. Uh, the missions team has been doing an incredible job uh, as we think through our global partnership cities. Uh, but I had the privilege in 2005 uh, to go to Cape Town. And one of my favorite things uh, is that I got to visit Robben Island. Uh, even if you've not been to Cape Town, maybe you've heard of Robben Island. It, it is the prison where Nelson Mandela uh, would serve 18 of his 27 years in a small jail cell because of his fight to overthrow the system of apartheid in South Africa. And Mandela would later say that the worst thing about his confinement on Robben Island was not the small cell in which he lived. It was not the forced labor he was required to do. But the most agonizing thing for Mandela was the view outside of his cell window. Because it was a perfect, beautiful view of the city of Cape Town, which was his city. And it was a symbol of home. It was a symbol of hope. Yet he was stuck and trapped in a cell with no way off the island. What do you think you would do to get through the pain of something like that? Do you know what Mandela did? He planted a garden. He cultivated a garden in what felt like a desert as a sign of hope, as a sign that one day he would be home again. I want that picture to stick with you as we spend time in 1 Peter together over the next number of weeks because I think it is a very good image of what Peter is describing as the Christian's reality. Peter would tell us again and again that this world is not our home. That as we live, we often feel stuck. And the longer we live, the more we become acquainted with the confines of this earthly life. But we can be a people of living hope. Because we know one day, someday, heaven and earth will be one. And the new city will come down from heaven and we will finally be home. Peter begins this letter by calling the readers the elect exiles of the dispersion. Right. The readers are scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he calls them exiles or resident aliens in this world, sojourners passing through, strangers in a strange land. And as a result, he, he tells them trials and sufferings are inevitable. In verse 6, Peter says you're going to be grieved by various trials. And I think Peter is purposefully not specific He's very general in saying you're going to be grieved by various trials because he knows that his readers and all who would ever read this letter as Christians will experience different and varying pressures in this world. That the trials and sufferings we face, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Right? First century Christians under Roman rule faced physical oppression, severe persecution. Exiles in first century experienced much of what Christians in Syria and Iran and China and other parts of our world experience today. And so I don't want to lightly throw out the word exile for those of us who are Christians here in America as though our experience is the same as people fleeing war-torn Ukraine or South Sudan. 
and how they understand being an exile. But I do think Peter is saying we all face, everybody in this world will face various trials and pressures as we're Christians living in the world. Social pressures, family pressures, work and school pressures, relationship pressures. And these trials and sufferings signal to us that this world is not our home. So how do we live as people of hope? How do we plant gardens in the desert? Peter's encouragement is to look up. To look up. If our eyes become fixed upon this world, we will either feel despair when things don't go our way, or we will become self-inflated when things seemingly go according to our plans. So we look up. And there's, there's two points that I want to make about this looking up for hope. The source of hope and the power to hope. The source of hope, where do we look for hope? Secondly, the power to hope. How are we enabled to hope? Let's look first at the source of hope. Look at verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter is raising our eyes to look up and to behold all the privileges and all the spiritual blessings that come in and through Jesus Christ. And the first privilege that Peter speaks of is new birth. According to God's mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now that phrase, born again, has been hijacked by certain sections of Christianity. It's caused some, me being one of them, to cringe a little bit at the phrase, born again Christian. But born again Christian is not some club within Christianity. It's not a brand of Christianity of people who kind of really get the gospel and other people who don't get it. Peter is saying the thing that makes a Christian a Christian is that they are born again. Now, when we see this word new birth, I think we're quick to think and even right to think. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I preached on John chapter 3 and Nicodemus and being born again. I think we're quick and right to think about the baby coming out of the mother, the mother's role in the birth. But the Greek word for born again used here in 1 Peter, it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. And it ha actually has to do with the work of the father in the conception of the baby, not the mother's. One translation translates this phrase, God has begotten us. That Peter is emphasizing that God the Father is the one who implants new life into one's soul. That's how one becomes a Christian. And one of my greatest joys in ministry is when I get to see someone become a Christian. I mean, 30 years ago, it was my joy to have God implant new life into my soul. And since then, I've seen God do this in many people. And there is nothing better than seeing someone come from death to life in Christ. Desires change. Longings change. The loves of the heart change. Now, it's not all at once. New life has to grow, right? But the person is new because God has implanted new life into the soul. This past week... Uh, one of my best uh, pastor friends texted a group of us. We're in a cohort group. I'm, I'm actually leaving today to go spend the week with them in Chicago. And one of the guys texted our group and he said, I just sat down with a 72-year-old man who's been coming to our church for years. And this man looked at me and he said, I've finally become a Christian. 
And then he said that the 72-year-old man with tears in his eyes said, I wish it wouldn't have taken me so long. I wish it wouldn't have taken me so long. I don't know if you've experienced new birth or not, but it's not about adding things to your life. It's not about becoming more moral or doing more Christian things. It's about God implanting new life into your soul. If this hasn't happened to you, I hope you hear the joy of the 72-year-old man and that you don't wait, that you ask God to gift you new birth. And if you have experienced this new birth, I, I pray that you would be filled this day with joy and gratitude that you who once lived apart from God, now by his grace have been brought near to live in and with God. New birth, it's a privilege for us to behold. The second privilege Peter wants us to look at is the actual historical and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. The actual historical and literal resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 3. Peter says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection. The resurrection's not a metaphor here. Here at Christ Central, we believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place in history. We believe it's an irreversible event that turned the world upside down. And as a result, we can, like Peter, be certain and confident and hopeful that God will do what he promises he will do. Amen? That hope for the Christian's not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It, it, it's not like me saying, I hope my Auburn Tigers can win at least one more football game this year. That's really wishful thinking if you've watched my Tigers play. It's not like saying, I, I hope the Tar Heels, the Blue Devils win it all in basketball this year, or I hope the stock market turns around, or I hope gas prices come down. Living hope through the resurrection is the assurance and conviction that God will triumph. This is why the literal and historical resurrection matters as a source of hope. For when you struggle to believe that your sins are truly forgiven, you remember the resurrection. That Jesus is risen from the dead, which means no matter how you feel, your sins are paid for. Because you cannot out the finished work of Jesus. And when you doubt that God is near and that God is at work in the sorrows and pains of your life, you remember the resurrection, that Jesus is risen, and one day, someday, we will rise to a world in which all is made right. The privilege of the, of the resurrection is a source of hope. The third and final thing that Peter tells us to look up and to behold is our guaranteed inheritance. He says it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, an eternal glory that far outweighs anything we will ever experience in this world when heaven comes to earth and we're finally home. Verse 5, Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded, that we are guarded, that our inheritance is guarded. This word guarded means locked up in a garrison. That your eternal inheritance is locked up in a garrison, completely surrounded by an army. Which means that you're not only protected from attacks on the outside, it also means that there is no amount of slipping or sliding that you can do that can lead to God letting go of you. You are locked up in the garrison of the Lord. The armies of God surround you. Your inheritance is guaranteed. 
So we look up and we behold all the privileges that we have in Christ. But do you feel the reality of the struggle? Living in the confines of this world while longing for our eternal home? I want to share an illustration that helps make sense of the reality that I'm talking about. Uh, I've shared this before, uh, but one of my favorite, probably my favorite seminary professor, Richard Pratt, used to share this illustration a lot with us while we were in school, and I want to share it again. Uh, He says, for the Christian, this reality that I'm talking about is the difference between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was June 6, 1944. The day before June 6, the German army occupied France. The Nazi regime ruled. On June 6, 1944, the troops stormed Normandy, and it was the decisive battle that declared that the war was over. Allies took control. But battles would still be waged and fought for the next year until the complete eradication of Nazi rule on May 8, 1945, almost one year later. May 8, 1945 was V-Day, the day of complete victory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was D-Day. It was the decisive event in history that declared God triumphs, that the cosmic war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness has a winner. Yet our enemy and the sin that lives within our hearts and within this world still wages battles against us. And we will face these battles until the day heaven and earth become one and Christ's final coming. And in that day, victory will be complete. That day is V-Day, and so we live between D-Day and V-Day. And the source of hope is Christ our Lord and all the privileges and spiritual blessings that we receive in and through him. That's my first point, the source of hope. My second point is the power to hope. Where do we get the power to be people of living hope? Look at verse 10. Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the salvation that I've just been talking about. And then look at the very end of verse 12. I love this. I've been sitting in this all week. Peter writes, things into which angels long to look. What Peter is saying, he's saying that the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is something we experience in a way angels never will. And that the angels long to look in a way that we are enabled to look. That in a way, angels are envious of what we get to experience in our salvation. And let that sit for a minute. Angels are envious of what we get to experience by God's grace in Christ's salvation. And angels are mentioned throughout the Bible. At Christmas time, When heaven came to earth in the form of a baby, angels came to earth to look into what was happening at Bethlehem. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the desert, an angel came to Jesus' aid and gave him strength. In Gethsemane, as Jesus was about to go to the cross, an angel came and ministered to him. On the cross, Jesus was surrounded by angels. And at the empty tomb, angels announced the resurrection of Jesus. So I I can imagine angels being envious of other angels who were chosen to be with Jesus in those moments. I mean, which which angel got to be the one with Jesus in Gethsemane? Which, Which angel got to be with Jesus in the desert? 
And our text is telling us that angels are, are peeking. They're, they're kind of peering over the shoulder of God and longing to look into the salvation of Christ. That they long to know salvation in the way we do, but never will because we are the ones who get to come to Jesus in our need and in our guilt and in our failures and in our struggles. And Jesus meets us and he forgives us and he loves us and he saves us. Herein lies the power to hope, church. It comes from peering into, looking into, and beholding such a great salvation. It comes from looking to Christ and glorying in what he's done for us. This is something we never graduate from, church. It never becomes old hat. We can never plumb the depths of God's love. We can never fully understand the fullness of our salvation. Eternally, we will be discovering more and more of who our God is. So in this world, we can never fully understand. And so we look into it over and over and over. And this is where we receive the power to hope. One of the, the main ways we can look into our salvation is through God's Word. You can read it, study, meditate, memorize it. It's the story of salvation. It is the power of God. The Word of God does not perish. God uses it to, to bring forth new life in, in our own souls and our own lives. And so I want to close by telling you a story from the Bible, from the Old Testament. It is a story that I think most commentators believe Peter had in mind when he's writing this letter to the elect exiles, when he's talking about fiery trials of life and the furnace of suffering and the great salvation of God. It's from Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, there was an egotistical Babylonian king named King Nebuchadnezzar. And he loved himself so much that he made a gold statue of himself and he asked everyone to bow down and worship it. And many Jews were living in ba Babylon in exile, but there were three young Jewish men who absolutely refused to worship the gold statue. Nebuchadnezzar calls them in and he demands them bow down and worship the image and they stand firm. They say, you can do to us what you want, but we are not bending the knee. And in anger, King Nebuchadnezzar takes them to his furnace, and he says, heat the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been heated. And he, they, he says, grab those three young men and throw them into the furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar runs to a place where he can look down into the furnace because he wants to be entertained by their suffering. But to his amusement... He sees these three young men walking around in the furnace. And then to his utmost amazement, he doesn't see three, but he sees four people. And he hurries down. He comes down. He says, I see four of them walking around. And one of them looks as if he's the son of God. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, get them out. And they open the door to the furnace and three come out. The fourth never comes out. King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know anything about the Bible, wasn't looking to Jesus Christ, but he knew something supernatural was happening there in the furnace. Brothers and sisters, we have the full story of salvation. We have the privilege of living on the other side of D-Day. We know who the fourth person is in the furnace. Jesus, our Lord. We know that Jesus did not get out of the fire of his own suffering, but he endured the cross. He took the tragedies of the world upon himself so that we could be saved. We know that death could not hold him down, that he would rise to new life so that we too would rise with him.
And until that great resurrection day, he has promised to always be with us. He's with us in the fire. He is with us in the flood. So how do we become gold and not ash as we experience the furnace of suffering in various ways? We look to the suffering Savior who suffered for us. And we trust that our risen King is always with us. And we know and we trust the truth of Isaiah 43, that when we pass through the waters, we have one who is with us. And when we walk through the fires, we have one who has promised to never let us be burned. Though in this life we will suffer, we will have various trials, but we long for the day when our king comes and the new city comes down and we're finally home. But until that day comes, let us plant gardens in the desert. Let us be people of living hope, looking to Christ and beholding all the privileges that we have in Christ. For this is the source of our hope and is the power to hope. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would cause hope to rise in our hearts. I don't know what everybody's going through, Lord, in the sanctuary this morning, but I do know we all face various trials. I do know that everybody at in here has felt like a stranger in a strange land. Everybody has felt the ache for home, the homesickness of this world just doesn't feel, it's just not, it's not our final destination. We know it's not because of what we experience as suffering in this world. And so Lord, Lord we, we want to look and we want to look in hope. And we know we can look and long and hope that that one day, someday, Christ will come and heaven will come down and there'll be a new Jerusalem, there'll be a new city. Until that day, Lord, let us anchor ourselves in, in the new birth that comes from your grace and the truth of your resurrection and the promise that the armies and angels of God surround us and lock us in for an eternal inheritance that, that awaits us. Lord, until that day, let us plant gardens in the desert. Let us be people of a living hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.